0: I want you to imagine this, that uh, maybe you're new to the whole Christmas thing, or at least the Christian perspective on it, and you decide this year you're going to do something to make it a little bit more personal. So at some point during the season, you're going to read the Christmas story. You're not sure exactly where it is, but it makes some sense that it ought to be there in the New Testament. So you open up your Bibles to the very beginning of the New Testament. Or or maybe you have some vague recollection that the Gospels tell the story of Jesus. So you open your Bible to the very first of the Gospels. And you're going to sit down, and you're waiting for the inspiration from above as the Christmas proclamation comes into your life. And you turn to Matthew 1, verse 1, and you start reading... And this is what you get. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. All right. You read onward. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Okay, it's getting really gripping now, right? Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of, of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Je- Boy, you can hardly hold your breath for the excitement. And on a ghost, Solomon, Rehoboam, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Uzziah, Hezekiah, Manasseh, And reading further, great names, by the way, right? Shaltiel, Zerubbabel, Abihub, Abihub, Eliakam, Eliakam, Azor, Zadok, Akim, Elihad, Eliezer, Mathan, Jacob, ah, Joseph, I remember him. He was in the Christmas story somewhere. The husband of Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is called Messiah. It's a hard way to make your journey through the opening pages of the Gospels. And, And to be honest... I think a lot of us just zone out on that chapter, or chapters that are like that. I mean, how many of you, honestly, you get to a section of the Bible like that, and you just sort of skim right over, right? And you call yourselves Christians, right? Yeah. At least there's some good ideas for baby names in there, right? Aminadab, Hezron, Shaltiel, your kids will hate you forever. (laughs) Now, I realize that some of you might actually be into genealogies, right? Maybe a few of you. But usually, we're not into other people's genealogies. We're not as fascinated by that. Truth be told, I'm really not even that into my own, and my grandfather would be terribly disappointed because he was a great genealogist. In the days before the internet, and just logging into a site and getting all that data, or uh, or searching your own genome to figure out how you're related to the great groups of the past, he actually made pilgrimages all the way through the United States and back into Europe to try and trace our ancestors. This is sort of what's going on here in Matthew. It feels like a snoozer, right? It's a genealogy. But those who've studied it closely, pastors and theologians and scholars, would suggest that everything that's most essential about Christian faith is actually embedded there in the genealogy. All of the essentials, the sheer number of things that Matthew is trying to suggest in that list of names is staggering. Now, we're, we're just going to look at five. We'll limit ourselves to that. But I think you'll find that in the names, behind the names and the stories, there is incredible truth at work. If you're looking for the five in advance, so you can zone out through the rest of the message, if they're on the back of your order of service, they're in the notes. And here's the first one. I borrow this expression from Tim Keller. The gospel is not good advice, Keller said. The gospel is good news. And this is what he meant. Most of our good stories start out with once upon a time or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? Uh, That's not the way Gospels start out in the Bible. Matthew doesn't start out that way. Instead, he says, what I'm going to tell you is the story of something that actually happened in real time, in a real place. And I'm going to ground it in the genealogical history of this man, Jesus. That's actually one of Christianity's most important features, that Christianity is actual history, That the core of Christianity is not a series of principles or moral truths meant to guide us. It's what Jesus actually did for human beings. Most religion, if you peel back the layers, you'll see that it's built on teachings and principles that would remain true whether or not their founders actually lived or not. The religious founder was just a mouthpiece for the sayings. It's the sayings that comprise the essence of the religion. For example, the principles of Buddhism don't rely on Buddha being an actual person. The principles that Buddhists believe undergird the universe are things that would be true whether or not an actual person spoke them. The same for Islam, incidentally. The pattern of how Allah wants us to live Uh, was spoken by Muhammad, who they believe is is an actual person. But it's not Muhammad or his life that are key. It's the principles that were spoken. Not true for Christianity. Christianity depends on a set of events that took place in history in real time. Why is that important? Because the core of Christianity is not what Jesus taught us to do, but what he did for us. And so scholars would point out the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the books that contain the record of Jesus' life are really just prologues to the main event, the story of his crucifixion and resurrection. In fact, if you read the Gospels, you'll notice some of them, particularly Mark, is mainly just a few chapters of preamble and then one long extended narrative of the passion, crucifixion, and then the resurrection of Jesus. They kind of skim over 30 years of Jesus' life, and then they devote a little bit of time to three years of his teaching. But then the narrative stretches out into expanse of time as they go into great detail, focusing on the one event that was absolutely critical to this being good news, the cross. Now, Now, the Gospels, I mean, of course, they contain lots of things that Jesus said. And they record some of the activities that he was involved in. But the focus of the Gospels is not on what he said and did. It's the, the focus itself is on the cross. That's why Keller was emphatic that, that the gospel is not primarily advice. It's good news. In fact, that's what Gospel means. The word is euangelion. Eu is a little word that just means good. And uh, a galios or angelion is message. Angel is a messenger. Good news, gospel. So imagine, for example, you were living in ancient Greece, and a foreign army is invading your country, and the general in charge of protecting the citizens of your nation is shorthanded, Sends out word that they need every able-bodied person to come and help fight. That wouldn't be gospel, would it? That is not good news. But imagine that the general had won the victory, defeated the invading army, and then sends out a message to the country that they'd won, they're victorious, you're safe, peace now is abundant in the land. That would be called a gospel. That's good news. And the messenger who brought the gospel would be called an angel, an angelos. When Jesus was born, you remember who showed up? Angels. Messengers, announcing what? They didn't say the great teacher is here. They said the Savior is born. This is the euangelion. This is the good news. Because you see, what the world needed most then, what it needs most still today, is not one more religious teacher. We hadn't listened to all the ones that had come before and the ones that have come since. Why would we listen to a new one? That'd be kind of like a seventh grader failing in their multiplication tables, and so you enroll them in a calculus class and see if they're going to do better that way. Listen to what what C.S. Lewis wrote about this. He said, you know, there's been no lack of good advice for the last 4,000 years. A little bit more would not have made any difference. We've never really followed the advice of great teachers. Why would we begin now? Why would we be more likely to follow Christ than any of the others? Because he's the best moral teacher? That makes it even less likely that we should follow him. If we cannot take the elementary lessons, is it likely that we're going to take the more advanced ones? If Christianity only means one more bit of good advice, then Christianity is of little importance. We needed something different. And so God becomes the difference for us. Enters into history to do what time had shown we could not do for ourselves. Those who believe it and receive it, for them, everything changed. Not primarily because of what Jesus taught, but because of what he did. Listen, the most important thing about the Gospels is that they must be received and believed as a gift means you are not made Christian by trying to emulate Christ. Even if you do it really, really well. The core of Christianity is not a set of teachings to be followed. It's a gift to be received. The gospel is not primarily good advice. It's good news. That's the first observation about the genealogy. It grounds the story of Jesus in real time, in a real place. Here's the second thing. The genealogy shows you that Jesus is situated right there at the center of history. Matthew takes what many would have considered to be an insignificant family line and organizes all of human history around it. And here's why that's important. At this point, it certainly doesn't seem like Jesus is the focal point of history. Israel is a small, backwater, Middle Eastern country. It's under the rule of somebody else. It had almost always been under the rule of somebody else. Nobody in Rome is paying attention to this family line that Matthew's talking about. But God had made a promise long ago. We looked at it last week. A promise to Abraham. A promise that salvation would come into the world through one of his descendants at this point in history, you've got all these powerful nations. You've got Egypt, and you've got Rome, and the empires of the East. And they all seem like they're directing things. What Matthew is trying to do by opening up this genealogical window is to show that God is, in fact, at work behind the scenes, directing everything according to a carefully laid out plan to bring his Messiah into the world. All the other powers are kind of illusory. Let me give you one quick example of that. One of the details most people know about Christmas is that Mary and Joseph had to travel to Bethlehem. That's part of the story. We like that part of the story when the kids enact it, right? Because what are they going to make of that scene where Mary is supposedly riding on a donkey? How will they do that one? Will it be a real donkey? Will it be a stuffed donkey? What will happen? But You know they had to travel to Rome. You remember why? Taxation, a census, right? Luke explains to us that this was God's purpose so that one of the key prophecies about the Messiah would be fulfilled. He was going to be born in Bethlehem. And so God works through Rome through taxation plans. Amazing to think that God could work through a government's tax plan, right? God works through the taxation plans of Rome in order to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem to fulfill a centuries-old promise. And you wonder, why would he go to all that trouble? Why not just appear to Joseph in a dream and say, Joseph, go to Bethlehem. I mean, I think this is probably meant to show us that God can move powerful nations around like chess pieces on a board. And, and he uses the tax plans of a whole empire just to move a young couple 90 miles down the road. And here's why it ought to be encouraging. It doesn't look now like Jesus is the center of history. It doesn't always, right? CBC News is not here this weekend paying attention to what we do in the service. I know where they are. They've been in my neighborhood all week dealing with the murder of a 14-year-old boy who died a block from our house. They're... They're watching what they think is most important. They're keyed into the powers of the world, the markets, the parliaments, world politics, crime stories, the Twitter feeds of the ultra-rich athletes and the ultra-nutty politicians, right? But these things are like a drop in the bucket, insignificant, compared to what God is doing in the kingdom of Christ. There is an unseen power at work behind the story. I'm not sure sort of where this connects with you this morning. I know that that if you look at any slice of time in any group of people, there will always be some who are who are discouraged. Maybe discouraged as they look inside, maybe even more discouraged as they look outwards. In the church sometimes it feels like there's a lot of discouragement. When they see a tide of secularism or unbelief or Corrupt institutions or what they identify as the failure of family values in a nation. But don't be deceived. It didn't look back then like God was accomplishing his purposes, and yet he was doing his greatest work. Jesus, you remember, his, his face is on the cover of both sides of this book. He wins. The same is true of your life. You may be discouraged. It may look like you're subject to forces that you cannot control. But God has an infallible purpose in your life. To reveal Jesus to you, to glorify himself in you. Everything in your life has ultimately been about that. Which brings me to point number three, which is a fascinating one with this genealogy. God is at work in all things, good things and bad things, all things for his purposes. You see how, if you're in Matthew chapter 1, maybe you want to look down there at verse 17, the very end. And there the author explains why the genealogy is laid out the way it is. Organizes the progression from Abraham to David, then from David to the exile, then from the exile to Jesus as three sets of 14. Now, that makes no sense to us, I suppose. But you'll remember if you've hung around Bible geeks long enough that there's always been something significant about the number seven in Scripture. Completeness, holiness, goodness. Uh, Two sevens, the biblical number, the concept of completion. Now, if you were to compare this list to other genealogies in the Bible, maybe you'd find that there's some names missing, some generations that are skipped, common practice, very common practice in the ancient world, still common practice for us. Matthew tries to organize this genealogy in three sections of of 14 as a way of superimposing the seal of God, perfection on history, which is amazing when you consider just how random and messy and chaotic a lot of the stuff is in that genealogy. Let me give you an example. Verse three, have a look at verse three. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. All right. Well, that seems innocent enough. First, why include a mother's name? They never included women's names in Jewish genealogies. Uh, It gets stuck in there in order to draw the reader's mind to that story. Do you know that story? The kids are all gone, right? Any kids left in here? (laughs) I'll give you fair warning. Here's the story that their minds immediately would have gravitated towards. Tamar, this woman, the wife of one of the sons of Judah, her husband died, died before they could have any kids. In those days, part of the obligation of the surviving brother was to take the widow into their household, to marry her and care for her as her own, and to give children so that the dead brother's line could go on. That might seem kind of weird, but that was the custom. It was called leveret marriage. It was to ensure that the brother's name would survive and the brother's wife would be protected and honored. And so the brother who brings her in is named Onan. And begrudgingly, he takes Tamar as his wife, but he doesn't like her. And because he doesn't like her, He decides he's not going to give her any kids. And so whenever they came together, Onan made sure that he didn't quite... Let me tell you how the King James Version puts it very delicately. He spilled his seed on the ground rather than give it to his brother. You know that was in the Bible, right? Yeah. God wasn't pleased with this either. And so Onan dies... Now Father Judah is down two sons, and he's only got three. Legally speaking, this now twice-widowed woman now is supposed to be taken in by Judah's third and only surviving son, a man named Shelah. But at this point, Father Judah is thinking, listen, there's something off about this woman. Every son I give her winds up dead. And so I'm not giving her my last one. And so he stalls and he puts off the family obligations for years. And Tamar eventually figures that Judah is never going to let her marry the third son. This is devastating. That means she will be a casualty of the norms of the ancient world. Turns out that Father Judah has a weakness. Has a weakness for prostitutes. And so distressed and disoriented and and filled with fear, Tamar hatches a plan. She dresses up like one of those seductresses. She goes to Father Judah's bed and she becomes pregnant with Perez and with Zerah. Three months after she becomes pregnant, she starts to show Father Judah notices. Everybody notices. This is a scandal, right? She's supposed to be a widow. She's supposed to be in mourning. He orders that she be stoned to death for sleeping around. They drag her out into the street. And there on the street, she makes her case. She says, see, I have here in my possession the belt of the man who is the father of these children inside my belly. Guess whose belt? Judah's belt. Awkward situation, right? I wonder what it was like around the Thanksgiving table that, that year for them. By the way, are you feeling any better about your own family tree right now? There are at least four or five examples that are exactly like that one in the genealogy of Jesus. Messy, chaotic, awful stuff. Why is it there then? I mean, could it just be a way of saying that God is at work even in the most ridiculous, messy, messed up situations in the world? And that means he can be at work in my life too and yours. Sometimes the most dysfunctional parts of our lives, the part that would certainly bring God pain and brings you pain, are the very things that God can use in order to move things forward maybe some of the things that others did to you angered him just as much as much as they did you but God has one overriding purpose for your life and that's to accomplish his purposes in you and that's why the Bible says and it's hard to receive and it's even harder to apply but it says that in the darkest parts of your own personal life your story your genealogy God is at work in the chaos. And He strips off all those labels and He stamps 14 on them. The perfection number. Romans 8.28 He is at work in all things for good. But do you remember verse 29? That one doesn't go on the bumper stickers. It talks about what the good is. For those whom God foreknew, He destined to be conformed To the image of his son, to be the firstborn among so many brothers and sisters. Before we go on, let me just give you one more observation about this genealogy that kind of gets at that point. Skeptics often will point out that there's actually a second genealogy in the Gospels. There's another one that comes in Luke, and that the genealogies are different. The genealogy in Matthew talks about the, the line of descendants through Joseph. The genealogy in Luke talks about the line of descendants through Mary. You remember long ago, those of you who've been sort of hanging around churches for a while, that, that there's this part in, in the Old Testament where God says to King David, it comes in the book of 2 Samuel, that one of his descendants would sit on the throne Forever. The kingly line would be passed from father to son, David to Solomon, Solomon to his sons, and, and on and on it would go forever. But somewhere along the line, one, in fact, not just one, but a whole bunch of those descendants came way off the rails. They made just such an abysmal mess of their own lives and the life of the nation that eventually a word comes to a man named Jeconiah, one of David's descendants that as a consequence of his terrible conduct and misbehavior, he and his descendants would never sit on the throne again. So now you've got a problem. You have a promise to David, one of your descendants will be on the throne, and then you have a curse against Jeconiah, your descendants will never sit on the throne. Enter Luke's genealogy. Luke makes it clear that Mary also is a descendant of David through a different line, right? Uh, David to Solomon, that's one line, but there's another line that comes through Nathan. And in fact, in the very nature of the birth of Jesus, because technically, Joseph is not a blood relative, right? He is at best an adoptive or a surrogate dad. The biological descent from the king to Jesus comes Mary the political cultural one might come through Joseph it's it's an enticing marvelous way of honoring both the promise and the curse of God the coming of Jesus and maybe it's because I'm one of those Bible geeks that I find that fascinating and if it's just me you can zone back in again if you zoned out here's the fourth point the gospel is not just a message for the insiders of the world. For a Jewish person, their genealogy was like their resume, right? Your heritage showed the world your worth. And so you go back in your history, even like today, right? resumes are fudged to include the very best parts of your lives and omit the nasty details. It's been said that the closest some of us will ever come to perfection and the guiltiest we will ever be of total, being total liars is when it comes to our resumes, let me give you an example. Herod, remember him in the, in, the, in the Jesus story, the Christmas story? Herod was king when Jesus was born. He published his genealogy. And as he did so, he expunged any record of his embarrassing ancestors. And he had loads of them. And he came from, according to his genealogy, a line of sheer awesomeness from beginning to end. <laughs> I told you I'm not really into... Genealogies, but I'll tell you what I know about mine. Um, I'll tell you that that some of those in my family who pursued this weren't satisfied until they could link our family to some awesomeness there in the past. It's like until you reach King James, you know, it just it wasn't adequate enough. But here's the part I also know about my genealogy. There may be a little bit of awesomeness in my blood, but we had ancestors that spent a lot of their days in prison. Most of my relatives on one side were thrown out of every decent country in Europe. And they they came seeking refuge in the United States, in Pennsylvania. Even our name, the name Root, is kind of made up. Because when they came to the border, they weren't going to give their real name. Either that or they were too illiterate to to spell it, and so what they pronounced was written differently. A a genealogy is like a resume. And we want to show our linkage to powerful, important people. That's why it's so remarkable, the names that are included here in the resume of Jesus. We talked about one of them. Here's a few others. Rahab, a prostitute, a Gentile that God saved from Jericho. Ruth, a Moabite, foreigner. By the way, you see all of these women that are in the genealogy, not considered important in those days for resume purposes, and yet there they are. And they're not even respectable women. In every case, they are women who are involved somehow, usually as the victim of sexual scandal. Verse 6, David and the wife of Uriah. Why that phrase? She doesn't even get a name. Why not just write her name, Bathsheba? In writing the wife of Uriah, I mean, the Gospels are making us remember the story that David betrayed one of his best friends, slept with his wife, then had him killed to cover the whole thing up. The line of Jesus, the resume, the genealogy is filled with moral outsiders, with ethnic outsiders, with gender outsiders, all of it sending us kind of a message and it's hard to miss that Jesus didn't just come for the insiders. He's not ashamed to identify in his family those who the world had pushed to the very edges. The prophecy said as much, all we like like sheep have gone astray. And yet, instead of allowing us to turn to our own selfish ways, he takes upon us the iniquity of us all. So you have Abraham and King David mentioned the same list as the prostitute Rahab because in Christ, prostitute and king sit equally at the same table. And the message is clear, right? The names to be included in the line that leads to Christ will be as widely inclusive as possible in order to make possible the reality that yours and mine can sit there too. Our Savior saves to the uttermost. Says, no matter who you are, what you've done, there is room in His family for you. You may feel like an outcast, but He brings you close. You may feel worthless, but His passion is evident for you. God, God is at work in the ugliest of situations as well as the best. Here's the last of our, of our points in this genealogy. Jesus is the ultimate rest. How do we get to that? Remember this number thing, three sets of 14, right? Maybe it's been a while since you've been in math class, but three 14s is six sevens, which makes Jesus the seventh seven. Again, seven, really significant number in the Bible. Completion, rest, rest. God creates and rests on the seventh day. Every seven years the land was allowed to lie fowls so it could rest. Leviticus talks us about the seventh of the seven year cycles. Remember we talked about this, the Jubilee year? All of which is saying that in Jesus the Jubilee has come. Debts forgiven, slaves freed. He has come as the ultimate rest. Come unto me, Jesus says, all you who are labor. And are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. You don't have to earn it. It comes as a gift. You can quit striving. Quit worrying. Just rest. You don't have to prove yourself. In Christ you have the approval of the one whose opinion ultimately is the only one that matters. If God is for us, who can be against us? You don't have to bear the weight of the world on your shoulders. He came as your shepherd, your protector, your friend. And in you, He can rest His case. Romans 8.32, reading on, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? Come unto Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Not what people need most at Christmas. Not one more tinsel wrapped gift. Rest. Now listen, you can go crazy with all these number games three, fourteens, seven, sevens, but remember this. In the genealogy are the essentials about who Jesus is and what he meant. He comes as a gift to do for us what. We could not do for ourselves. It's not good advice, it's good news. The central point in history in your life is right there in a Bethlehem stable. God has been saying to you in all of your pain, in all of the fragility of life, that there is no joy on earth that can sustain you, but there is joy that comes at Christmas that is forever. And you were created for something more. He offers you rest. Which is... What some of us need most, Christmas twenty eighteen. Have you received him? Have you invited him. You worked so hard to prepare everything else for the season. Yet to all who receive him, John's Gospel says, to those who believe in his name, he came he gave the right to become the children of God. Let's pray. God, it's easy to miss it, the truth that's embedded there in, in even the fine details of Your Word. We don't want to miss any of it. God, help us as we sit under the counsel of Your Scripture to find even in a list of names the truth that will bring life and hope and rest. And I pray for my, my friends, my brothers and sisters in this room. Now that there would be something in your word that would, would be at work in our lives. That would redeem parts of this season that are confusing or bitter or exhausting. That would connect us with ultimate reality. The center of history. With the gift of grace that gives purpose and power to our days. God, we invite you. We invite you into our worship. We invite you to our families. We invite you into our lives. Lord Jesus, come now.